0: morning, everyone. I don't know if um, you're a fan of wind turbines. I'm an engineering uh, opening here, I'm afraid. Um, but love them or hate them, I think they're, they're here to stay. Um, and if you've ever got close to a wind turbine, um, it's quite an impressive sight to see those massive blades whizzing round and at the front of them. It's, it really is quite impressive if you get close to them. Um, but it always made me think, how do they manage to stay in the ground? Because basically it's like a massive big propeller wanting to take the thing into the sky. Um, but one day at work I was, I was passing the, the civil engineers uh, section and they had some drawings of a wind turbine. And I was amazed at the, the drawings. The foundations are just so chock full of concrete. Couldn't believe the volumes of concrete they pour into the bottom of them. Um, just to keep them uh, wasted down. And that's when I understood, that's what keeps um, those things basically on terraform and stops them taking off. And, and there's a picture here of what it looks like when they don't put enough concrete in the foundations. So what's all that to do with Second Thessalonians? Well, today as we look at uh, chapter 2, the letter that Paul, if you remember, wrote to uh, the young church in the 1st century AD, um, we'll find in our passage that Paul was going to tell us what it is that we need to be rooted in to be able to stand firm. We'll see what our theological foundations are made of is absolutely crucial in making us stand through the turbulent times of life. Now we've had some fairly um, heavy subject matter in the last uh, two Sundays looking at chapters 1 and 2 so far. But in today's verses it's as if Paul kind of pauses in the letter and changes emphasis. And here Paul moves away from the judgment ahead and the prophetic vision of lawlessness, which we looked at last week, and he moves on to give thanks to the Thessalonians uh, and the fact they've been saved. So let's read these next five verses together. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we've passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So we see Paul brings in this note of contrast in his writing here. Up to this point, he's been laying down some pretty uncompromising words, core truths about judgment to come. And then he says in verse 13, but we ought always to thank God for you. There's some relief coming here. I don't worry, some good news. All this judgment stuff does not apply to you. But more than just the negative things not applying to you, there's all this good stuff that does apply to you. And I want us to really try and get into the the meaning of these verses this morning. It's too easy to read through verses like these and just see a bunch of theological phrases that can just kind of make maybe a little impact on us at first reading. So I'm going to ask um, just for a little bit of audience participation here, okay? Now, if you're from an Anglican background, that's no problem, we can do that. I tend to find from of our background in this kind of church that that tends to strike terror into the heart of congregation when you ask for audience participation. Uh, In fact, probably the only other two words... Um, that used to strike me with as much fear in church, certainly when our children were younger, uh, was when anyone in a church service said, sorry, Ryan, now let's have a time of quiet reflection. (laughs) No, 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 we don't want quiet reflection. As I look across at Shona and she's pulled out a massive rattle from under her arm. (laughs) You know, bring back the band, get the band back on. Um, Now, admittedly, that was a a different period in my life, Um, when I visit to a church on holiday or uh, to visit relatives, we always seem to coincide with Alistair with a handful of metal cars, we'd be on the front row of a wooden pew, and somebody would say, let's have a time of quiet reflection. It was a a heady cocktail, but uh, but no, no, quiet reflection is good in church, I'm I'm only joking. But I understand that audience participation can be a little bit stressful for some of us, but um, we're going to try and dig a bit deeper into these verses, 13 and 14, so we just don't scan over them and miss the the depth of them. So, can you join with me in saying out loud some of these great truths in 13 and 14? So, I'm going to say we are, and then we're all going to join in and say the word that appears, okay? So, we are loved by the Lord. We are chosen by God from the beginning. We are saved. We are sanctified by the work of the Spirit. bit trickier that one. Come back to that. We are believers in the truth. So good to be believers in the truth. We are called through the gospel, and we are sharing in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll think a bit more about what that means as well. Right, that's the audience participation over for now, so you can relax. Um, but what a great list of seven things in two verses. Loved by the Lord, chosen by God from the beginning, saved, sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit, believers in the truth, called through the gospel, shared in the glory, sharing in the glory of our Lord Jesus So we're going to move beyond just listing them, though. That's all very good. We're going to investigate them a bit more as we go through. And I've used five words that begin with S, if you like, just to give us a bit of a structure to do that. Um, So we're going to look at selected by God or chosen, if you'll let me have that, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, sharing in the glory of Jesus, standing firm with the gospel, and strengthened and encouraged to do good. So in verse 13, what does it mean to be selected or chosen? By God to be saved. Well firstly it means that our lives must have meaning. And purpose because we have been chosen by God. The book of Ephesians tells us we are God's workmanship. We're unworthy, sinful, flawed, yes to all that. But we're not worthless. We're made in God's image. He's redeemed us. He's bought us back. The ransom's been paid all through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the Greek word for choose here is herio and it's linked with this idea of grace. It's not a choose based on human merits like we've chosen the best player for our team but it's a choose according to God's own purposes. And our text goes on to tell us that this was done from the beginning which is in line with other parts of the Bible which talk about God choosing before the foundation of the world. Now If that seems a bit mystifying to you and if if it gets you thinking along the lines of what's the point then, the die is already cast and I'm just living out a preordained future, then we need to take a step back from our momentary, time-bound perspective and remember, God's perspective is eternal and we just don't have that view. He knows the beginning from the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that we could come up with a fairer or more loving system than God's plan. For God is more merciful than we could ever imagine. And then one day, when we finally see the whole plan, we won't be able to find any fault with it. While God's choosing a doctrine called election can be perplexing to our minds, it should comfort our hearts. Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. So there's the sovereign, gracious choice of God. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts. And our response of faith, believing in the truth, completes that process of being saved. Of course, God knows the beginning from the end. He doesn't get a surprise when we choose to follow Jesus. But also, we don't get to say, well, I guess I'm not chosen, or they're definitely not chosen. That's not our call. Jesus told us that whosoever will may come and the apostle john tells us god is not willing that any should perish and it's on that basis that we share the gospel with everyone tim keller explains it very well think about it this way if everything was not planned by a holy and loving god everything would depend on us there'd be enormous pressure on christians when we evangelize We would know our stumbling speech could result in a person missing his or her one chance for salvation. It would be a horrible prospect. God calls all to repentance and so should we. In fact, the doctrine of election should give us far more hope because no one is a hopeless case. From a human point of view, many look totally hard and lost. But since salvation is by God's election... We should treat everyone and anyone with hope. Therefore, God's choosing should be a motivation to evangelize and not a discouragement. So the big picture, the cosmic picture here, God chose us from the beginning, before time began. He calls us to himself right now in time. And maybe even today he's calling you. And then one day we'll get to share eternity with him. Okay, that is the chosen part of verse 13. Nice, nice and easy start. Now we come to the next great theological phrase. Saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And here we can see not only has God chosen us, but He is also at work within us. And there are two aspects um, to this. The Holy Spirit working in us and belief in the truth we've heard. And this is another important doctrine called sanctification. Okay, time for a quick doctrinal jargon. Time out here. I need to back up a bit. Um, sanctification is not really a word that we use in everyday life. Certainly not where I am from. Um, so what does it mean? Well, it might not be that relevant in terms of what it means, what it sounds like, but it's actually very, very relevant in everyday life. And it's a bit like the many medical terms that doctors and nurses use. Um, nobody else uses them or, or understands them, um, but your life could depend on the reality they stand for. And, and we had that demonstrated to ourselves, me and Lucy, um, recently when we had to go and help an elderly neighbour. Um, he was having what turned out to be an asthma attack uh, and he wasn't looking or sounding too good. Um, so we'd gone around to his house and we'd had to call the ambulance. Um, I, I should tell you, all was well in the end at the end of the story. But um, when we phoned the ambulance um, and had the usual list of questions from the call centre, I don't know if you've done that recently, but you get hit with a barrage of questions. Um, in the midst of what was a bit of a kind of... Um, Alarming situation. It really became, well, almost comical. Um, if you can imagine television on, really loud, dog barking, our neighbour is wheezing away, and there's a guy on the phone saying things to you like, Can you ask the gentleman if he's had an aortic aneurysm? To which our gasping neighbour replies, A what? <laughs> Have you had an aortic aneurysm? To which he replies, Nah, I had shepherd's pie for my tea. <laughs> and, and so it went. But anyway, uh, the good thing was that um, the ambulance uh, car came and, and all was well, and, and basically he'd run out of uh, stuff for his asthma inhaler. So it was, it was good, it was good. Sanctification means two things it means sanctus, holy, and ficari, make. So make holy to sanctify or to set apart. But of course, the word holy isn't actually that much more relevant than sanctification. I think it often makes us think of kind of Old Testament priests or. Shining angels, or something just way out there and vague and hard to define. But as irrelevant as the word sanctification may be where you work, the reality is absolutely crucial and very practical. So, this is what sanctification looks like. Suppose you run a business and you've always tried to conceal your actual income when you're filling out your tax returns. Then you come to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. And you begin to tell the truth on your tax returns. That is sanctification. Suppose you always try to win every argument going. And then the word of God speaks to your conscience. And you begin to argue less and look for ways to keep the peace. That is sanctification. Suppose you're sleeping with your girlfriend and you meet Jesus Christ and you get the courage to move out. That is sanctification. As you read the New Testament letters, we see that sanctification is connected with obedience. So being sanctified sanctified is a process of becoming more consistently like Jesus, more Christ-like. It's an ongoing process that happens every day as we make decisions to follow Jesus' teaching. And we decide not to follow our sinful desires and temptations. Sanctification comes about when the Holy Spirit helps us hear the truth and apply it in our lives. Okay, verse 14. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thirdly, what does called to share in the glory mean? We were called to saving faith through the gospel, but for what reason? Well, Paul says it was to share in the glory of Jesus. So in an amazing way, our salvation and the harvest of believers all through history is going to be part of the glory of Jesus. And we'll come back to that. But firstly, let's just think for a moment um, about how you were called. It's amazing just to reflect, even in this room, um, the different ways that people were called by God and came to faith. I was a a 12-year-old boy uh, who heard God's call over many months, and then one night in my bedroom in Glasgow, I gave into that call and answered it with a simple prayer. Daniel Monk was in his 30s when he heard God's call come through a Zimbabwean test cricketer sat in Andy and Claire's lounge. True story. C.S. Lewis, a very famous author, academic at Oxford and Cambridge University, he was fighting against God's call and he said in his own words, In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert In all England, the Philippian jailer in the book of Acts heard God's call right after his prison had almost collapsed in an earthquake. God's call does come in many different forms and in many different circumstances in our lives. And maybe this morning, you've come to church this morning and you've started to hear God's call in your life. Maybe even you've been fighting it off for many years. Can I say, listen to that still small voice and ask Jesus to come into your life? Confess that you're a sinner and you're sorry for living apart from God. If that's you just now, then please don't put it off any longer. So you are called uh, in the gospel, by the gospel, but called to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it even look like? I think it's really hard to grasp what Paul says is getting at when he says, sharing in the glory. It sounds like something that we should be blown away by. And I guess I am if I sit and ponder it for a while. But I think maybe we here in Britain are, we're not well, we're not well known for our natural exuberance, are we? And it's been noted, the further north you go, uh, maybe the more reserved we tend to get, with a, with a few, obviously, exceptions. By the time you get to Aberdeen, oof. And that can contrast quite dramatically with other cultures. Um, and that was kind of really rammed home to me um, when a few years ago we uh, had a holiday in America, went to my brother-in-law James's wedding. Um, and it was a bit of, a, bit of an epic trip. Kirsty was just four months old. Uh, and Alice was six and Sean was three. So it was a bit, bit crazy, a bit out there for us. Um, and when we were there, we thought, well, what do the Americans do? Well, they do theme parks really well. That's why Americans do well, theme parks. We'll go to a theme park. And I remember this one, it was called um, the Six Flags Theme Park. And a really strange motto they said, more flags, more fun. It just, just didn't get... It. But anyway, it was a great theme park. And, uh, and as, we, as we kind of arrived there, um, you know, jet-lagged, you know, lack of sleep, just generally a bit bamboozled by America, struggling with the whole drive on the other side of the road, all that was going on. We arrived at the manicured lawns of the theme park, the super-efficient American queuing system, and we arrived at the little booth, and the standard issue, beautiful American man steps out, white teeth gleaming, and says, good day, sir, oh, you're going to have a great day today, and how are we doing? And I mustered up in my best west of Scotland enthusiasm. Aye, not too bad. (laughs) And and I can still picture the guy's face. He just kind of looked at me with this look of perplexion and and confusion. And he definitely said back to me at least twice, not too bad. (laughs) Not too bad. Okay, sir, good. Good, well, you have a good day and then... Off we went, so uh, he wasn't a broken man, but I kind of imagined him later on going back to the staff room and saying, you never believe what this guy said to me in the way in. (laughs) Um, Because I had defined myself in uh, my well-being, not in a positive way, but in an entirely negative way. It's not going terribly today, so that's a plus. (laughs) So if you're someone who uh, is full of British reserve and the concept of sharing in God's glory makes you want to say, aye, not bad, then maybe we just have to work a bit harder at accessing and thinking about what God's glory is like. But maybe sometimes also, and this is definitely true for me, we can hide behind that British reserve and really it's just apathy towards Jesus and not not an actual problem with understanding the sense of rejoicing in his glory. So having said all that, let's try and dig a bit deeper into what glory is all about. This is clearly a, you know, five-month sermon series so we're just going to do a couple of minutes on it perhaps it's helpful if we think of it like this we were made to find our deepest pleasure in admiring what's infinitely admirable the glory of God we were made to find our deepest pleasure in admiring what's infinitely admirable the glory of God So here are some imperfect examples that might give us a sense of what God's glory might be like just from an earthly perspective. So when we see a beautiful view, an amazing sunset, uh, a fabulous sweep of sandy beach, a mountain peak you can't take your eyes off, the feeling of awe, especially when you come across that view suddenly of eye-watering enjoyment, the wow factor, that is starting to give us a glimpse of God's glory in creation. Maybe it's in the arts. We see a brilliant bit of acting where the actor or actress absolutely conveys the emotion of a situation. So you're caught up in that scene. That sense you have of admiration of a story so well told, so creative. is an insight, I think, into God's glory. Or an amazing piece of music which makes the hairs in the back of your neck stand up. Maybe a painting that moves you. A sense of, oh, something done so well, so otherly. You just couldn't imagine being able to do that that sense of admiration. Or when you see someone at work, maybe doing their job incredibly well. A teacher who can hold a class full of teachers, transfix. An engineer who's come up with a brilliant solution to a problem. Or a carer who brings joy and kindness in the most difficult circumstances. Maybe those earthly things, creativity of work, of beauty, they just give us a small foretaste of what God's glory <coughs> is like and that of course finds its crescendo in Jesus he what was he like he was utterly selfless he was perfect he was completely holy without sin infinitely admirable the glory of God in fact veiled in flesh he taught with authority and wisdom that no one had ever seen before he overcame death itself and we shall share in that glory being around the person of Jesus worshipping him in a new heaven and earth when Jesus comes again and the living and the dead in Christ shall rise then we will know fully what it means to share in the glory of Jesus Christ I don't have the vocabulary or the imagination in my mind to explain it any better but it's going to be well glorious what else could it be Perhaps when we read um, the end times passages, the danger is we spend too much time worrying about how bad things will become as we move towards the end of time and we don't spend enough time marvelling at the glory and the splendour of Jesus' coming. Someone I I knew once described um, sharing in the glory as being a bit like if you were a fan of um, the great masterpieces, this is the Sistine Chapel, and you've gone to visit it in Rome. Um, and when you got there, you found to your amazement that um, Michelangelo was actually there doing some of the painting. And you were blown away, thinking, this is amazing. I get to see Michelangelo actually creating this masterpiece. But then to your great concern, he turns to you and he hands you a brush. And he says, Can you give me a hand with this next bit? And you're thinking, No, I'll make an absolute hash of it. I'm, I'm hopeless at art. That's actually true. Um, But the amazing thing is, God is involving us in his masterpiece. He's letting us share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we read these words in chapter one. He comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony. So, I think that's something that I would like to leave with you to, to ask you to meditate and pray about. What will it be like to see and to share in God's glory? Ask God to help you understand that more. And I'll let John Piper have the final words on this and why it's so important. Seeing and sharing in God's glory is our ultimate hope through the gospel of Christ. Hope that is really known and treasured has a huge and decisive effect on our present values and actions. Verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. That's what Paul says. So we've thought about all that great stuff, all that stuff that's true about our position in Christ, both now and in the future. God has chosen you, He's called you, he's sanctifying you, we're going to share in his glory, and we know God's purposes cannot fail, don't we? They are great foundations. That is a whole load of good concrete that's keeping us rooted. And that is why Paul then turns to them and says, so then, in other words, if all that is true, if all that good stuff applies to you, then that means we need to stand firm and hold fast to these teachings. Remember, the Thessalonians were under some pretty intense persecution. Things were hard. But that didn't change any of the truth that we've just been talking about. The fact you're chosen by God doesn't mean you can sit back and do nothing. It's the very opposite. There are three things that can affect the stability of a Christian, I would suggest. There's persecution, physical attacks. And Paul talked in chapter 1, didn't he, about um, how God would repay those who oppress Christians. There's temptation, moral attacks. And Paul has talked, uh, we've talked today about the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. And then thirdly, there is false teaching, intellectual attacks, which seeks to undermine our faith in God's word. And the only way to resist false teaching is to hold on to the true teachings of Christ and the apostles that we find in the Bible we need to stand firm in the face of persecution, definitely. We need to stand firm in the face of temptation. But we must stand firm on the teachings passed down to us in the Bible. And the word used for teachings here is paradosis. And that has the idea of teachings that are, have a greater authority than the one who gives them. So in this case, the teachings passed on by Paul are from the word of God himself, Jesus. Stand firm and hold to the teachings. I think that's probably just about the most appropriate message we could hear at the start of twenty eighteen. In a world of changing public opinion, where um, it seems month by month major cultural and societal changes happening and things that were once considered right and true are now discarded. Paul's message of stand firm and hold to the teachings is absolutely crucial. When people say to you, ah, there's a new perspective on Paul's teaching in the New Testament, ignore them and hold fast. When the news media tells us that scientists have discovered conclusive evidence that Adam and Eve didn't exist, hold fast to the history of Genesis. When you hear supposed Christian leaders on the radio saying that the church has to change its position on human sexuality to keep in step with modern life, hold fast to the teachings. When your colleagues at school or at work twist what the Bible teaches, maybe take verses out of context to try to confuse you, hold fast to the teachings. That might make you unpopular at times, certainly, but hold fast, stand firm. Is that God's word to you today, to take away in the situation you face at home or at work? God is asking you to stand firm. The alternative, of course, is easy to do. Don't stand up for anything. Go with public opinion. Keep up with the in crowd. Follow the latest trending hashtag on Twitter. But it was a Scottish church minister who summed up this approach well when he said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And then black civil rights leader Martin Luther King uh, said these prophetic words which he then lived out himself. If a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit Live. The outcome of not holding to the teachings Paul describes in another of his letters is a life tossed about by every wind of doctrine, like a boat adrift, no idea where it's going, no sound basis for making life decisions other than what seems to be most popular right now or what makes me feel happiest. That is not a good way to navigate life, can I tell you. It's a bit like doing a hill walk in the fog. Uh, That's something I've done a fair few of, it has to be said. Um, And one time I was out with my friends in in, in Scotland and we were been walking for quite a long time. Total fog bowl, the whole day, not a sniff of a view, just falling with the little compass, chatting on. And after a while, you know, we're having a good time chatting away, and I can't stop looking at the compass quite as much. And so we probably wandered off. And if you've ever been in the fog, everything looks exactly the same. Sometimes you don't even know if you're going up or down. And at one point, as we got to a few hours in, I came to what seemed to be a pretty large cliff. And at that point, my heart kind of froze, because looking at the map, there wasn't any cliffs anywhere near where we should have been. So I'm thinking, we are lost. <laughs> I'm going to have to break the news to the boys here that we're, well, I don't know where we are, and it's going to be a really, really long day to get out of this. And the worst thing is when you're lost and you don't know where you are, you've got no basis for making the next decision. Do we go left? Do we go right? Do we go back? So we did probably the wisest thing, which was just hold on to the compass bearing and just keep on walking, hoping that we'd roughly hit the last hill we were meant to be climbing. And, and so it was. And it turns out that that cliff was just really a crag, but in the mist it looked really massive. Um, and when we got there, I was so relieved. It was just like, oh, thank goodness I know where I'm going. We could take a bearing and, and all was well. So the lesson is this. Please don't wake up one day and find yourself on one of my hill walks. No, no, it's not that, it's not that. it's no, that's, that's not, that's not that. <laughs> that was Lucy who told me to say that. But no. no, The lesson is, don't find yourself lost because you didn't hold firm to the teachings of the Bible. You've walked away from the truth that your parents taught you, or the teaching you received in this or other Bible-believing churches, or the truth you read yourself in the Bible. Don't throw that away. Heed Paul's instructions, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings. Finally, our passage um, ends with Paul praying a prayer of encouragement for the Thessalonians and by extension for us here today. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. He reminds us again of our place in God's love, of our internal encouragement and of the good hope we have. He prays that we would have our hearts encouraged. And for that to happen, we need to understand the foundations of our faith that we've thought about this morning. But we also need to feel that theology in our hearts, don't we? That we'll be strengthened and able to do every good deed and word. And that echoes what else Paul said in the letter. In chapter 1 he said, God may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. And as we'll see in later weeks in chapter 3, Paul urges them to never tire of doing what is good. So as we play our part in God's masterpiece by living our lives one day at a time, making decisions to do good deeds and use good words Remember, God chose us. We can't be unchosen. But we need to hold fast and to stand firm. The image is not of a a driverless car. God doesn't suddenly save us and take over control like a celestial autopilot. He's in the car, if you like. He's guiding us. He's lighting our way. But we are still driving the car. Some wise person once pointed out, small deeds done are better than great deeds planned. So let's pray that this week, We live our Christian faith in the small deeds, in everyday practical ways. Some of us have been running the race for a long time. Our bodies and our minds are feeling pretty tired. Encourage your hearts and let God remind you that you will share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Some of us are young, we're at the start of the race. We need God's grace to stand firm as we set out and decide what our lives will count for. Choosing not to pursue wealth or pleasure as an end in itself, but to make our lives count for so much more than a wage packet or a nice house. Or maybe you're in the middle years of your life if God were to give you a normal, typical UK lifespan. And the direction in your life is not quite what you thought it would be. God's message to you might be especially needed today. May God our Father encourage your hearts and strengthen you Every good deed and word. Okay, can I just presume on you one more time and ask for our last piece of audience participation. Let's strengthen and encourage each other as we repeat those great truths one more time. Okay, we are loved by the Lord. We are chosen by God from the beginning. We are saved. We are sanctified by the work of the Spirit. We are believers in the truth. We are called through the gospel. We are sharing in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we take the words of Paul's prayer as our own now. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good, good hope, encourage our hearts and strengthen us in every good deed and words. Amen.